Hello. Kai Cater? That's me. Hey, this is Dom Flemons, the American Songster. Um, would you care to join me on the American Songster podcast? I'd love to. All right, well, let's go ahead and turn the knobs and get it going on this show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the American Songster Radio Podcast. I'm Dom Flemons. On this episode, the Toronto-based artist Kaya Cater joins me in the studio. We'll hear from Kaya about her journey as a traveling singer, songwriter, and banjoist, and how race, nationality, and youth have factored into that experience. All of, all of a sudden, people started saying, "Oh, you're you're a black banjo player," you know. And I was like, "Well, I guess I, I'm I'm black and I play the banjo, so yeah." Plus, we'll hear some selections from Kaya's recent performance at the Fletcher Opera Theater in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey, Kaya. Glad you could join us on American Songster Radio. Hey, Don. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, the last time that we talked, uh, we were discussing how you were wanting to decide whether you wanted to do music as a profession. Now, can you uh, just maybe tell me a little bit about what you were thinking at that time and then uh, tell me what you've been up to recently? Sure. Well, I remember when we talked, that was my senior year of college. So that was, I think, towards the beginning of uh, last year. I've since graduated. Okay. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. I have a piece of paper now that I <laughs> keep at my parents' house. Um, yeah. No, I, I think that because I grew up around folk music, uh, my mom was a festival director. Um, as you know, she presented the Chocolate Drops a few times. Um, and I sort of got to know um, a lot of musicians very early on in my life <laughs> I had no illusions about both the joys and some of the perils of of being an independent folk musician and um and so in the way that other the other people's families you know uh, you have the the son or the daughter that's like I want to go out on the road and I want to be a folk musician and the parents are like no <laughs> you need to you know you need to study and get your law degree you need to get your medical degree or, or whatever it was sort of the opposite for me because uh my my family's uh has been involved in folk for for ages I mean my grandpa is a luthier um he builds guitars and harpsichords and and uh and so yeah so I I think I was sort of afraid about, you know, how tough it would be uh, to be touring and to be away from home for a long time and how I could withstand that pressure. And also if I could put out any music that would be worthwhile to listen to or would have any chance of success. Okay. And so, yeah, so uh, I think I I wrestled with those things and, and I remember our talk was a very big turning point for me because, you know, you said that if if you're not 100% in it, then don't do it. And so I knew at that point that it was it was a point of commitment. Well, well you know, it, it's, I, I, I saw a lot of myself in your journey through music and the, in the way that, you know, um, my parents, they were uh, supportive of me learning music, but they weren't necessarily supportive of me going out and trying to make a living at, with music at first, not until I finished college. Yeah, I thought that was a really important thing. It gave me a lot of time to think to myself of, of how I wanted to uh, present 
myself as a world citizen. At that time, I couldn't articulate it that way, but that was that was something that I was starting to build for myself, and the college education really helped out. Now, how long have you been out there full-time touring? So full-time, I graduated in May of 2016, mm-hmm. so it's been about seven, eight months that I've been full-time on the road. Okay, well, uh, let me ask you this then. What has been the biggest surprise that you didn't expect uh, when you signed on to be a traveling musician? That's a good question. I think the biggest surprise for me was the fact that I didn't miss home as much as I thought that I would uh, because I feel like I'm able to make my home in different places that I'm at. Um, And so uh, things like... um, I don't know. I always knit when I'm on the road. Nice. And that's something that that helps me and that's like grounding for me. And uh and I know I I know when I run into a lot of people, a lot of my friends even from school, they're like, "Well, I could never do what you do. I could never travel like you do." And I don't know how I would do that, but I think that I found ways and I'm continuing to find ways to adapt to that. Nice. One thing I find, this is something that a lot of people don't know when you get into traveling, uh you know, if you run down the street, you get tired, exhausted. But see, when you travel for, I don't know, say three, four months at a time, you get past the physical exhaustion and then you get mentally wore down and then you start finding out you do all sorts of funny sort of things. But how'd you start into knitting just to... Yeah, well, I learned knitting from both my mom and my grandma. And so I've been knitting since I was like 11 or 12. And, uh, and it, it's always for me it's always been a way to be still um but I always feel like I have to have my hands doing something like I I've never been able to just sit and meditate yeah Um, I was my mind wanders um but when I'm knitting I feel like it's a repetitive enough of emotion that um I'm able to just do it and relax somehow and it's something that I can do in the car something that I can do on the train Mm -hmm. it's something that I can do in a hotel and the original idea was then I would start, uh, that I would knit and I would sell whatever I made at shows. That plan kind of failed because I'm a really slow knitter. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I was only able to make like one scarf. Uh, hey, well, that, that's all good. Just a joy of knitting doesn't necessarily mean you got to make it into the, your livelihood. And that's, exactly. a good, that's a good thing, keeping yourself sane with that. For me, it's always been reading books and listening to records, which worked out pretty well when it came to touring. Now, when... When I first started getting into old-time music and doing it as a profession in 2005, uh, the idea of the banjo being an African and, and uh, black black instrument from the black communities of the South and uh, this long history uh, that goes back all the way to the slavery days and then and then evolves into jazz and to blues and to old-time music, and there's this, this whole other school of thought that uh, I was a part of early on that kind of helped expand the idea of what people think about old-time music. And, of course, uh, meeting you early on uh, in 2007, and, uh, you know, your mother had wanted to en- encourage you to meet other people of color in the scene, and uh, that's always a great thing. That was what the gathering I went to was originally about. Was um, Of course, it was an academic event, but it was also based on the idea of, of uh, confirming that you weren't the only one out there. <laughs> and, you know, and that's a not uncommon thing to have in, in a lot of uh, the, the bluegrass scenes and, and the old-time music scenes. And so basically, I guess I would ask you, what, what have you seen 
in terms of change and progress. I like I I can say that it's been a very interesting thing because as I've gone along, I have found that people have been really interested in 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 what I've had to say and my perspective on the music as I've gone out there, just because it's good to bring a new person to the table. What have What have you felt about that as you've been traveling? Yeah, I mean, I I think that when the chocolate drops came out, I mean, I remember. I remember that I was sort of becoming conscious as a <laughs> as an adult and and I remember it being so new and mm. and people being so excited about it and you know I started playing the banjo just cuz I like playing the banjo and I um and then all the <laughs> all of a sudden people started saying Oh, you're you're a black banjo player, you know and <laughs> I was like well I guess I, I'm I'm black and I play the banjo so yeah but um, it was never really, I think, part of my identity as a musician for a long time, probably because I was coming to terms with being biracial and, and what that meant to me and what it meant to be, you know, Canadian. And uh, my father's an immigrant, and so what, what that meant to me. Um, and so it felt very, very complicated. But the only friction that I rub up against is when people are so excited to talk to me and to, to talk about the music and to talk about, you know, the West African roots of the banjo or or um, their own experiences with the banjo. I think sometimes they don't have the language with which to talk about it. Um, so one guy one guy from Chicago, um, I, I play with a, a bass player, Andrew Ryan, who's um, he's white and and we, we have a duo show that's my show that we mm-hmm. tour. Yeah. And uh, this guy from Chicago, very nice guy, but he came up and said, wow, I, I love that intercultural connection, mm. you know? And, and that, that was kind of fraught with, with some things that we are like, well, we're just playing music on stage. Like, it's not, you know, we're just two people. Absolutely. Um, but, but again, like, it wasn't, it wasn't hateful. And so I really, I'm really pretty forgiving about that stuff and and if I if I have a chance to correct it in a nice way in a gentle way then I'll do it because I don't want to alienate people or make them feel stupid or or lowly um you know uh Daryl Davis um who's a a, yeah great piano player yeah great piano player he he says that there's a big difference between ignorance and stupidity and ignorance it's, it says it in the word. Ignorance is just not being aware of certain pieces of information or not ha- being aware of, a lang- of the language used or, or whatever. And so you can definitely cure ignorance in, in a way that's kind and productive. Um, but you, you can't cure stupidity, which is just sort of this lack of interest in, in any of it. Yeah. Um, and to, to date, I haven't met anybody who's come to my shows who's been... Um, who's been sort of fraught with stupidity? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, well, so it's really it's it's been pretty positive all around. Well, that's good, you know. And it's like I said, the field is for uh, African American practitioners is a uh, has been one that's been present the whole time that the genre has been out there for presentation on stage. But the representation of new talent and uh, is always uh, something that's just uh, baby steps. Tell me a little bit about your newest album, Nine Pin. I've been told that it's a bowling uh, style, a nine pin bowling. <laughs> okay. uh, but I I named it after a square dance formation called the Nine Pin. Okay. Um, and so in the Nine Pin, you have uh, four couples, so eight people. Mm-hmm. And then 
uh, they're standing sort of in a square. And then in the middle, you have a ninth person, and that's called the nine pin. Mm-hmm. And no matter when, you, when you're dancing that formation, no matter what, there's, all, there's always going to be an odd person out in the middle. And that's what makes it fun. It's like you never know who's going to be the nine pin next. It's almost like musical chairs. Oh, okay. And so uh, I found a lot of beauty in uh, square dance formations that I saw. I felt like they were a cool sort of art. And like if you... Um, if you look at square dancing from above, it's really cool because it's almost like a human kaleidoscope, right? Oh, oh yeah. People are, are interchanging shapes. Nice. And so, yeah, um, and so I found that really symbolic, and, and so I started playing around with those sort of terms, and uh, and I ended up writing my song sort of uh, looking at the allegory of, of Nine Pin, which is, you know, the, the person that's sort of on the inside looking out. Nice, nice. What do you say we listen to a little bit of music? Sounds good. Well, here's a recording of you playing at the uh, Fletcher Opera Theater in downtown Raleigh on February 24th, 
Be blue or brown. 
it's getting good when you knock your banjo out of tune. I'm going to play you a set of tunes. The first one is called Waiting for Nancy, and uh, the second one is called Valley Forge. And uh, the Valley Forge tune comes from, uh, does anybody know Grandpa Jones out there in the audience? We were talking about Hee Haw earlier today think of this tune.
Thank you so much. I wonder how much I've, well, how much time I have left up here. Tons of time, probably. Yeah. Okay, great. Actually, I don't have my glasses on. I got them. One more song. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to spend all my song time tuning. This song is called St. Elizabeth. Oh. 
was Kaya Cater, recorded in February of 2017 at the Fletcher Opera Theater in downtown Raleigh. The set was recorded by WUNC's Al Wadarski at a concert presented by Pinecone, the Piedmont Council on Traditional Music. It was part of Art and Soul, a collaborative celebration of African and African-American arts and artists in the Triangle area of North Carolina. American Songster Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. This episode was produced by David Brower, Joe O'Connell, and me, Dom Flemons, the American Songster. To hear more of Kaya Cater's music, check out her website at kayacater.com. K-A-I-A-K-A-T-E-R.com. There are more episodes of this podcast up on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Check them out to listen to my conversations with Martin Simpson, Bill Ferris, and other artists and researchers who share my passion for American vernacular music. If you like what you hear on American Songster Radio Podcast, subscribe, download, and tell a friend. Until next time, I'm Dom Flemons, the American Songster.